Welcome to Attacking Faulty Reasoning. I am Professor Ed Damer here with the co-host of this show, Professor Taylor Stone. And today we are premiering a new show on WEHC. For several years we've been co-hosting a show called Do the Right Thing. But our new show will address the problem of faulty or irrational thinking, both in our personal lives and in our private and public discourse. We are calling the show Attacking Faulty Reasoning because quite often the best way to learn how to reason well or think critically is to learn how to recognize our own faulty reasoning and or the bad reasoning of others and then to find effective ways to address it. And our plan on this new show is to help our listeners each week to not only become better thinkers, we might call them critical thinkers, by avoiding common errors in their own reasoning, but to detect those common errors in the arguments of others. We also plan to suggest effective ways to respond to such faulty reasoning when it is encountered, and we will use plenty of examples of faulty reasoning. We're serious, but we plan to also make it fun. So tune in to WEHC on Mondays at 6 or Sundays at 3 o'clock. We might start our new show by saying that there is a good argument for making good arguments in our personal lives, and in our private and public discourse. And perhaps the first and most important reason for thinking that is that good arguments help us to make better personal and public decisions. I should certainly hope that it's a good idea to have good reasons for what you believe (laughs) rather than bad reasons. No one would choose on purpose to make a decision on bad ideas. Well, I might say that Aristotle pointed out long ago that humans are rational animals, which means that rationality, or that's what he meant, that means that rationality is the feature that distinguishes us from all other creatures and gives us the unique ability to make reasonable decisions about what to believe and do. And according to Aristotle, he made a big deal of this, humans have an obligation to nurture and to develop that rational capacity to achieve the good life. He talked a lot about the good life, Mm -hmm. and you do it through rational thinking. That's right, but that also doesn't necessarily mean that humans are universally rational. I've said in the past that humans are the rational animal, but that doesn't mean that we're necessarily very good at it. And Aristotle would be in agreement with you. He, he meant that we only had the capacity to do it, but it has to be dealt with. And he helped us in doing that. He's saying we have that capacity, but as a matter of fact, many of us don't do anything with that capacity. And that's partly because it requires a lot of training and a lot of mental exercise in order to accustom yourself to thinking in a certain way to be good at discovering what is a good argument. And to avoid faulty reasoning. Yes, that's the name of our show. Well, there are other good arguments for a good argument, and that is good arguments play a very particular and important role in helping us to make difficult moral decisions, which is what we tried to do or to demonstrate on our previous show, Do the Right Thing. Right. One issue that we encountered frequently when we were coming up with ideas for episodes of that show was that there were a lot of topics that were hot in the news that we decided that we couldn't do shows about, not because they weren't controversial, but because they weren't ethical dilemmas. We discovered when we thought about what the arguments for both sides were going to be on an issue that one side just didn't have any good arguments in support of them. 
So for example, if white supremacy is in the news, we couldn't do a show about it because there is no good argument in favor of white supremacy. So as two ethicists doing a show about ethical dilemmas, we couldn't do a show on that because it's not a dilemma. There's only one side. There are arguments for white supremacy, but they are not good arguments. Right. And we might think of another reason. Focusing on the quality of an argument is an effective way to resolve personal disputes or settle conflicts. And yes, it, it does work. And all we have to do is to discover which position is the better one by attending to the relative merit of each of the arguments supporting the opposing positions. And if both of the people in a personal dispute are committed to settling the conflict and deciding which of these positions is the right position, then they will be able to work out what the right thing to do in that case is. But we are aware that there are vast numbers of Aristotle's rational animals that are misled by things other than good arguments. They're misled by their allegiance or commitments to traditions, their, their blind ideological positions, their own self-interest, their ingrained prejudices, and, and emotional entanglements. And it's not surprising that people would act that way when they are engaging in argument with another person. Whenever we are interested enough in something to get in an argument about it, we are heavily invested in the thing that we're arguing for. We believe deeply in what we are arguing for, and so we want to be right. And we may have some vested interest in the outcome of this argument, depending on what the consequences of being found right in this argument are. We might also have some amount of pride in being the one who is the winner of the debate, or we might have some embarrassment about being found to be wrong that we want to avoid so that we defend our position to escape that embarrassment. But if we are going to be committed to good arguments, to be led only by good reasons for believing things, then we have to have some sort of commitment to accept good arguments when we find them. That is the case, obviously, uh, in the college classroom. I think we can assume that most professors work with good arguments, and uh, certainly that's true in the scientific laboratories. And when our own welfare or even our continued existence is at stake, most of us want good arguments to work. For example, if we were criminally accused and innocent, we really do hope that good arguments will work in the jury room. Unfortunately, uh, most of Aristotle's rational animals are not able to successfully detect and then reject faulty reasoning both in themselves and in others. And even though he listed many of these common errors in reasoning in his writings over 2,500 years ago, most recently, contemporary philosophers have studied this issue of whether these good arguments work. And um, they have learned that efforts to find the truth or resolve controversial issues is most likely to be successful if one follows or adheres to what you and I call a code of intellectual conduct. And that code is composed of at least 12 basic principles. And we'll be going over some of those today uh, and probably cover the rest of them in future episodes. But the first principle of the code of intellectual conduct that we'd like to talk about today is the fallibility principle. And that states that a rational person should be willing to accept the fact that he or she is fallible, which means that one must acknowledge that one's own position on an issue may not be the most defensible one. 
And that is not an easy task of the code. It is one probably which is the most difficult to say to the person with whom you are in disagreement, I may be wrong. But it is easy to say if you, if you practice that and actually do believe it, you may be wrong. And there's a good reason that you may be wrong. Many people are wrong <laughs> but why, but why in, is it in, in beliefs that they hold very dearly. But why is it important that if we're going to engage in argumentation with somebody that we must admit that we might be wrong? Because if we're in an argument with someone, we are trying to show that we are right. But if you refuse to accept your own fallibility, the, fact, the possibility that you may be wrong, uh, you are, in effect, saying that you're not willing to change your mind, even if you hear a better argument. And I think that would explain a lot about why it is that people think that arguments are intractable, because both sides have started the discussion with the assumption that they are right and cannot be wrong. And so both sides are unwilling to allow their minds to be changed. So, of course, the outcome will be fruitless. Uh, to fail to admit that you may be wrong is pretty strong evidence that you do not intend to play fairly. The idea is that you're going to listen to arguments and you're going to see if it is a better argument than the one that you have. But by refusing to admit that you may be wrong, there is no real point of any further discussion of the matter. So an admission of fallibility is, is a positive sign that you are genuinely interested in the kind of honest inquiry that may lead to the truth or the resolution of some controversial issue. And something I'd like to point out about the fallibility principle and its role in arguments is that a lot of people might have in mind when they hear the word argument, something like a debate. And if that's what we take to be the standard for an argument, then the fallibility principle is gonna seem very strange because when you are in a debate, when you are in a debate club where two sides are arguing an issue and they are tested on their rhetorical ability to convince someone, the participants in that debate are not allowed to be fallible. They are forbidden from acknowledging good points made by the other side because the whole point is to win the debate, not to believe only good arguments. It is interesting to think about that whole issue uh, when you think about a criminal case in the courtroom where the prosecutor cannot say, I may be wrong, but I think this guy is guilty of this particular crime. That's not going to be said and shouldn't be said. And they, also the, the defense attorney is not going to say, I may be wrong, but I think he's not guilty. Not even that. It, the defense attorney is not allowed to say anything like, yeah, you make a good point there. <laughs> right. Because that attorney would be disbarred for failing to provide the best defense for their client. But we're not talking about those kinds of argumentation. The debate club is not trying to find out which of these two positions is the most defensible one. They're trying to test the rhetorical ability of the participants, testing their ability to give a convincing argument. However, while we're on the uh, courtroom example that we've just been talking about, we do expect the jury to be open-minded and not to come in with what they think is the case or what they think the defendant looks like. He looks like he's guilty. No, they are instructed by the judge before they go into the jury room, you must make a decision based on the arguments that you have heard in this courtroom. 
And if you have some sort of knowledge about this case from outside of the courtroom, you are not allowed to take that information into account when you make your decision, which is very strange and very hard to do, actually. It's hard to set aside those preconceived notions in order to make a decision without them, and it would require extensive training and mental fortitude to be able to pull that off which the average jury person probably does not have, but hopefully through this radio show, we'll be able to create a better class of jurors. Right. I was just thinking about that same thing, that we don't expect people, but we do expect people, particularly if they serve on juries. We expect them to recognize bad arguments when they hear them and reject them and to accept good arguments when they hear them and we expect them to know what a good argument sounds like and what a bad argument sounds like. Well, we expect that as Americans and people committed to constitutional democracy, but as professors of college students, we know that the average person is not especially rational or good at thinking through ideas. But through this show, they're going to become rational and recognize bad arguments when they hear them, right? Well, that's the plan. <laughs> that's the plan. In any case, the fallibility principle is really the standard principle of inquiry among scientists, among philosophers, and most other academics. In fact, they might say that's a necessary condition of intellectual progress. If there's any doubt about the appropriateness of accepting the fallibility principle, you choose an issue about which people hold a number of alternative and conflicting opinions. For example, consider your own religious beliefs. Since each of the hundreds of conflicting religious positions is different in some respect from all the others, we know that we begin any examination of those positions that only one of them has the possibility of being true. Wow, episode one of the show, and you're already diving into religion, huh? <laughs> so it, it turns out that not only is it possible that your own religious position is false or indefensible, it's probable that it is. What's the chance of just yours just happening to be the correct one? Well, I think that highlights exactly why this is going to be a difficult principle to follow, because now that you've highlighted the one example where people will refuse to be fallible, <laughs> you'll see that suddenly the more invested you are in the outcome of this debate, the less likely you are to admit your fallibility, especially if you are a member of a religion which punishes the admission of fallibility with eternal damnation. That would be a hard one to deal with. <laughs> now, we also know it's hard. It's not easy to admit honestly that a firmly held position may not be true, but it is a discussion starter unlike any other. It not only calms the emotional waters if you're in a very intense kind of conversation with someone about an important issue uh, or about something you feel deeply about, but it has the potential to open up our minds to different and better arguments. If you're skeptical about how effectively the fallibility principle works, I'll tell our listeners that the next time you find yourself in a heated conversation or discussion with others, you be the first to express your own fallibility. At least make it clear that you're willing to change your mind. And then your opponents, in most cases, will confess to do that as well. And if they don't, then you know <laughs> at least that uh, this there's is not not, it's not going to be a productive discussion going forward if one of the sides declares in advance, I will not be convinced <laughs> no matter what. 
if they refuse to, to make the same confession, you will at least know the futility of any further discussion on the issue. Right. <laughs> so why, why are you arguing about this if the person has already declared, I will not admit that I may be wrong? So it works. And I've used this a lot of times, and I'm honest about it, because I do believe in the fallibility principle. I may be wrong. So I say that. I may be wrong about this, but would you be willing to say that you may be wrong? And they have a hard time saying yes, but eventually they do. And I believe you when you say that you are admitting your own fallibility, but I wonder if you also don't have some reticence to admitting fallibility. Like, for example, in the case of the white supremacy that we talked about earlier, would you be willing to admit your fallibility when it comes to the possibility of white supremacy having a good and convincing argument? Uh, it is not likely. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's a dodge of the question. Um, I, th I think that, that question has been settled, that I do have the right position on that for all reasonable purposes. Well, we used as an example the idea that we can't talk about white supremacy on the show because there is no good argument for yes. white supremacy. Uh, however, I don't think it's a mark against us to say that we would be willing to be convinced of white supremacy if there were a good argument but there is not, and there has not been a good argument for it yet. At least in our, in our world. <laughs> and, and so we can say that the white supremacy issue has been settled without going back on our own commitment to fallibility. I think we surely have to admit that what we think very strongly may be false or may be wrong. And we are open to that possibility, but as you said, some issues have been thoroughly discussed, and there's universal agreement about what the right answer is. So I'm, I'm saying that there are cases where it would be very, very difficult to confess to the fallibility principle, but most of the issues we talk about are not that well decided. At, at least when it comes to our show, Do the Right Thing, yes. where we talked about ethical dilemmas, we picked topics that had significant arguments for and against things that have not been thoroughly settled because we are still working out which position is the true one, and we are committed to finding which is the true position, not which is the one that we currently hold. I might say that even though we have settled a lot of questions, and you and I have settled a lot of questions, and believe strongly in, in the conclusions that we've drawn from our investigations, we do have to be open to the possibility and the surety <laughs> that we are wrong on some issues that we will be discussing. Several years ago, while I was serving on the conference panel addressing the issue of defining what it means to be a critical thinker, a fellow panelist defined a critical thinker as a person who, by force of argument, has changed his or her mind about an important issue at least once during the past year. Now, I thought a lot about that, and I thought about maybe issues that I changed my mind on, I've changed my mind even though at one time I thought I was correct in the position that I held. But if I never find a position <laughs> that I can admit to being wrong on, I'm not really a critical thinker. I mean, something's wrong there because I surely I cannot be right on every issue that I've ever held. But even supposing that you did just happen to be right about everything that you've ever believed— you can thoroughly imagine scenarios in which you would be wrong. You can imagine what it would be like 
if you were wrong about this and then go and find out whether that scenario obtains. Yes, I often have that, that thought. It says, am I wrong about this? I really do ask myself that. Am I wrong about that? And I do try to find some way between further investigation about that issue. So you don't have to be convinced of something and discover that you were wrong about something in order to be a critical thinker, but you have to be critical of your thinking and be able to imagine how you might be wrong in order to know that you are right. <laughs> of course. So uh, this, this fellow panelist that I mentioned who gave this definition, the critical thinker is a person who, by force of argument, have changed his mind or her mind about an important issue at least once, went on to say that it's highly unlikely that any person would just happen to be correct on every position held at any time on every important and controversial matter. <laughs> of course, you're going to be wrong sometimes. That is the very nature of our humanity. And someone who recognizes that and wants to be right is going to be committed to finding which of these positions is the true one so that they can believe it, even if it's not what they currently believe. So let's move to a second principle that we want to talk about in that code of intellectual conduct. Huh. And that segues nicely to the truth-seeking principle, which states that a rational person should be committed to the task of earnestly searching for the truth, or at least the most defensible position on the issue at stake. Therefore, one should be willing to examine alternative positions seriously and look for insights in the arguments of others. You know, the truth-seeking principle has gone hand-in-hand hand with the fallibility principle since the time of Socrates, who taught us that we come to true knowledge only by first recognizing our own ignorance or lack of knowledge. The search for truth then becomes a lifelong endeavor, uh, which typically takes the form of rational discussion. We, we get into discussions with other people, and we learn things that we didn't know, and we realize that we may have been wrong about why we believed a particular thing, and at the same time, allowing others to thoughtfully criticize our views. And that, that's a good thing, because that's where we get closer to the truth. But I think it's important to talk about the truth-seeking principle separately from the fallibility principle because I think there are a lot of people out there that are not committed to seeking the truth. You've encountered thousands of them in your college classrooms where you ask a student to present their position on an issue and uh, when they give it and you start to pick apart their reasoning for why they believe that, They'll say something like, well, that's what I believe, and I think everyone should be allowed to believe what they want to believe. They're but not seeking the truth. They're not. <laughs> well, okay, so they're not seeking the truth, but why is that the case? Is that because truth is not valuable? Is it because truth does not exist or that everyone can invent their own truth for themselves? Yeah, I think part of it is, and I've thought a lot about this, that most students that I've taught and most people who are not students <laughs> that I've talked with think that an argument is just an expression of their belief. And they say, we had an argument about that. And what they mean is, he said one thing and I said another. And, you know, we're entitled to our own opinions. No, that's not an argument. That's just an expression of an exchange of, of contrary opinions. That is not an argument. Argument we're talking about is something that is supported by good evidence. We'll talk about what a good argument might look like in, in a later time. But I think that most people that I've encountered don't think like philosophers do typically, or scientists 
they are thinking about what they believe. And they, they even say, it, it was what I was always taught. That's the best reason or argument that they have. And when they give that argument that this is what I believe because that's what I've always been taught, that does explain why they believe it, but it doesn't explain why it would be true or why it would be convincing to other people. The fact that you've always believed it or it's what you were taught does not give any justification for me to believe it. Yes. So you offer nothing to help me in my world of inquiry. And the fact that you already believe it doesn't make it true. And if you are committed to believing true things, then you need to be open to the possibility that something that you have long held to be true turns out to not be true. Yes. The history of science shows us it's not likely that the truth is now totally in our hands. It almost certainly is not, yes. <laughs> Therefore, all of our intellectual energy should be directed toward finding it. Let me go back to something you mentioned earlier, that when people engage in a discussion, they want to, quote, win that discussion, uh, even if they use faulty reasoning to hold on to it. But real truth seekers do not try to win by ignoring or denying the counter evidence against their positions. If you were in a tennis match and you win the game by calling an end ball out, uh, you did not win the match. <laughs> a genuine win is finding the position that results from playing by, by the rules. Uh, the rules of seeking the truth and by committing to the possibility that you may be wrong. And I think that is best summed up in the next principle that we'd like to talk about, the principle of charity. And that says that in the context of a discussion with a person who has an argument that supports a different conclusion, a rational person should be willing to try to formulate that other person's argument and carefully express it in the strongest possible version in a way that is consistent with what is believed to be the original intention of the arguer. Now, when we are in a discussion with somebody and they hold a different position than us and we are committed to accepting the best defended position, we've already accepted that we're open to the possibility that we might be wrong. And so when it comes to determining whether our discussion partner has a good argument, we have to take the best argument they have into account. So we, we can't frame their argument in a bad light or present it in a way that is incomplete or less effective because that might lead us to throw away an argument that would be a good argument if it were framed better. Yes. In fact, if you're genuinely interested in pursuit of the truth, you might help your opponent with the argument by putting it in a, even a better form, which would make it more reasonable and less faulty. Uh, and that, that's a good thing because we're seeking the truth. And if, if there's something in there that, if stated in a better form, or the best form possible, might have some persuasive feature. I encounter this all the time in my philosophy classes where I'm talking to freshman college students who've never done philosophy before, and they're trying to present their positions, but they don't know how to explain it in words. They have the idea in their head, but they don't have the words necessary to say it out loud. What I tell them is that that's the job of philosophy to give you the words so that you can give your positions out loud. Go ahead and give your position as best you can with the words you have, and we may be able to work it into a better argument because if you have good ideas and you just lack the words to be able to express them, then we can make that into a good argument 
together. And that would be a very charitable thing to do. Well, I, I think it's very charitable, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. I mean, it's charitable, and it, it, it leads to better discussion and better arguments on both sides. Yeah. So if a discussion partner has a good point but lacks the ability to articulate it clearly, we should help them to make that into a good argument. Or the best argument they could. Into the best argument, not necessarily to say that they're right, but that this is the best version of their argument. And in fact, that seems to be the opposite of what happens in a debate society, because we're assisting the other person in making a good argument. We don't want to do that in a debate. <laughs> right. You'd be disqualified if you did that in the Calliopean society. <laughs> yes. But I think that's about it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening today to Attacking Faulty Reasoning. If you have comments on this show, please send them to me, Taylor Stone, at tstone at ehc.edu, or to eddamer at tedamer at gmail.com. And remember to tune in to our show each week on Mondays at 6 o'clock and Sundays at 3 o'clock, when we will be addressing common errors in our own arguments and the arguments of others and how to effectively deal with them.